you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, what love, what amazing love, what kindness you show toward us. Your power is amazing and your compassion is unbelievable. And over and over again, you show us in your word uh, that you are real, that you are alive, and that you do have power. And your power is meant to bring you glory. And so this morning, as we open your word again, I pray that as we study, yes, we would be reminded of your power. Yes, we would see the healings that take place here. But all in all, at the end of the day, we would glorify you for who you are and for what you've accomplished uh, on this world and in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, where we've been spending our time working right now through the chap uh, through chapter eight. We've seen some amazing things so far, and this morning we witnessed yet another amazing act. Actually, two of them combined right here into one account. So I want you to follow along as I read. I'm going to start in verse 40, and I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter at verse 56. So Luke writes these words. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, And touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And that's the end of chapter 8. 
Before we dive into the details of this particular amazing day, I want to zoom out for just a moment, and I want to remind you why Luke is writing his gospel. It was in the declaration of his opening account that he records these words way back in Luke chapter 1. He said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, so Luke is recording his account So that this gentleman, Theophilus, whatever it is that he's heard, Theophilus can be convinced that, yes, this Jesus is God. This Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so to convince Theophilus of these truths, Luke is recording all of these miracles and words of Jesus so that there's actual proof on record. Here it is, Theophilus. You have to reckon with this. And so Luke, in laying out his case in chapter 8, back in verses 22 to 25, has given Theophilus proof that Jesus has power over nature. Remember, he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Then he recorded later in that chapter, verses 26 to 39, that Jesus has power over demons, or he has power over the supernatural. And now, in our text this morning, Luke is writing to convince Theophilus that Jesus has power over sickness and disease. Okay, so you see what Luke is doing here. He's building his case to prove that Jesus is otherly. He's not merely a man. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a superior moral example. He is all of those things, but he is far, far more. This is Jesus, God himself. And because he's God, Jesus can accomplish exactly what he set out to accomplish, that is, ultimately, to save sinners from punishment due their sin. That's the goal at which Luke is driving. We have to remember that. We have to kind of keep that in the back of our minds when we come across passages like Luke 8, or we could fall into the trap of thinking that the Bible is merely a how-to manual to get the things that we want in life. I'll explain that a little bit more as we get toward the end of the sermon, but just for now, know that people sometimes believe and teach all kinds of hokey-pokey nonsense uh, to try to manipulate God into doing the things that they want God to do when that really isn't the point of the text, all right? And I don't want that to happen to you this morning, so I want to remind you, Luke is driving for ending up with this ultimate goal of Jesus is God and he saves sinners, Okay, so now that we kind of think about that, let's look at some of the specifics here in this account. We have two stories that are intersecting in our passage this morning. One is the story of Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter, 
And the other is a story of an unnamed woman and her 12-year-old health disorder. So I've titled this sermon this morning, 12 Years and Then One Amazing Day. All right? So look again at verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Well, when Jesus returned from where? Well, if you look just back before this, he's returning from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Gerasenes, the cities of the Decapolis, where he had delivered a man from a legion of demons. Sadly, the townspeople over there on on that side near the Decapolis saw what happened to their herd of pigs and they begged Jesus to leave. They missed their opportunity to find out who this guy was and to give them the thing that they most needed in life, and that is eternal life. They just wanted him gone. In contrast, when Jesus returns now to Galilee, these crowds are waiting for him. They've seen his miracles. They know what he can do, and they're anxious for him to do more. And so they welcome him with a great eagerness when he and his disciples land here on the shore this day. And when he gets there, verse 41 says, there came this man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and he falls at Jesus' feet, and he's begging Jesus, come to my house, for I have an only daughter. She's 12 years old, and she's dying. The ruler of the synagogue was an elder in charge of the public services of that synagogue and the care of those facilities. He was the one that people, he would appoint rather people to pray, people to read scriptures, people to give the sermon. He was the head of the elders of that synagogue. And typically he was a man of reputation and a man of wealth. In light of that, Jairus is taking a significant risk coming to Jesus this day because there is a growing dislike of this Jesus guy, this troublemaker, as some saw him. And many, many people didn't care for Jesus. And so now this religious leader is coming and asking for help. But quite frankly, Jairus doesn't care. In an extreme act of humility and courage, Jairus presents his request to the one person that he thinks can help. And his request is desperate. His one and only child, a 12-year-old daughter, is lying at home in his house on the brink of death. And he comes to Jesus and he says, will you please just come and help me? For those of you who are parents in this room, you can immediately sense the urgency Because if you are a parent, you know that you will do whatever is necessary to help your sick child. Money is no consideration. Travel is no obstacle. Personal sacrifice is no issue. Whatever it takes to help this child get what she needs, you will do it. And you will go and you will figure out everything else later. That is true of every good parent for every child, but it's especially true for Jairus because he has only one child and she's 12. Which tells me, and I'm reading between the lines a little bit, 
Scripture doesn't tell us, but I wonder if Jairus and his wife had trouble getting pregnant. Because one-child homes were uncommon in this era. And even if Mr. and Mrs. Jairus could have more children, spacing them out every 12 years would have been exceptionally rare. If Jairus loses this daughter, he and his wife are left with no one. Now, please don't hear me saying, if you are a parent here this morning, that I am not saying that if you lose one child, you should just be happy if you have more at home. Well, my goodness, what a terrible thought. Every child is precious, and it would be a tragic loss to lose any of them. But to lose your one and only does bring a heightened sense of loss. Jairus loves this little girl. And at age 12, if you know 12-year-old girls, she's beginning to blossom into a young lady. And I wonder if Jairus has begun looking around his town, wondering of all the little boys that are there, which one of these guys is going to be her future husband. I wonder if he's starting to imagine what it would be like someday to have grandchildren running around the house. Maybe he's looking forward to those joys of holidays and, and celebrations together. And all of that now stands on the threshold of death. Jairus doesn't care that Jesus has just gotten back from the land of the Gentiles. Jairus doesn't care that Jesus was around pigs. He doesn't check to make sure that Jesus was kosher. Though There was only one thing on his mind that mattered, and that was his dying daughter. And so Jesus agrees to go. They begin to make their way to Jairus' house and the crowds just start pressing in. And verse 43 says that in the middle of those crowds, there was this woman who had a discharge of blood. She'd had it for 12 years. And though she had spent everything she had on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. For the exact same amount of time that Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman had been bleeding. The exact nature of the bleeding is uncertain, but the context would seem to suggest that it was some sort of uterine hemorrhaging. I'm guessing that when the bleeding began 12 years ago, the woman didn't think much about it at the time. I mean, these things do happen. But as time went on and the bleeding didn't stop, the woman became more and more concerned. So she visited this doctor. He couldn't help. She went to this specialist. Couldn't help. And in a frightened determination to get answers, she kept Doctrine, And eventually, Luke tells us, she spent her entire living on physicians. She had no money. And yet she was left with no answers. In fact, uh, the gospel writer Mark tells us she was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, remember, Luke is a physician, right? And I wonder if maybe to save face... He just throws in this little phrase, she couldn't be healed by anyone. Okay? This wasn't a doctor problem. This is a patient problem. 
She was uncurable. Besides the fact that this would be an extremely embarrassing problem for this woman, her hemorrhaging rendered her unclean, and anyone who touched her would also be ceremonially unclean. Leviticus chapter 15 makes this abundantly clear. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until this evening. Because of this woman's Impurity, because of this woman's bleeding, she has been unable to worship at the synagogue for 12 years. She has been unable to go into the marketplace without hiding. She has been unable to have friends and family over because every piece of furniture on which they sit, they too become unclean until that evening. This illness has been embarrassing, it has been isolating, and it has been demoralizing. She's taking a tremendous risk, by the way, to go out into the crowd on this day to try to get to Jesus. If somebody sees her who knows about her condition, they're going to make a big scene. Everyone's going to go scattering in every direction, leaving her humiliated and discouraged even more. Further, since everything that she touches becomes unclean, she is taking a humongous chance touching Jesus. Maybe that's why she sneaks up behind him, not wanting to defile the one person that she sees who might be able to help her. Verse 44 says, She came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. The fringe of the garment is referring there to a tassel that hangs on the end of the square garment that's thrown over the left shoulder. It wasn't necessarily the the lowest hem of his cloak as is often imagined. And her faith was almost superstitious, wasn't it? But in that moment, the Lord honored her small faith. Instantly, the flow of blood ceased. How did she know that? Well, she must have felt something change. She must have felt something come through her body and and the charge of Jesus' power through her, she knew she was healed. And in the hustle and bustle of that crowd as they're all kind of trying to make their way over to Jairus' house, rushing to the bedside of this dying girl, Jesus just stops and he says, Who touched me? That was not a question of ignorance. It was a question of opportunity. Jesus was giving opportunity for this woman to reveal herself and openly express the faith that caused her to touch him. 
But the disciples find this absolutely ludicrous. How in the world would we know who touched you? Look around you, Jesus. There's people everywhere. That is an impossible question for us to answer. And of all the people that challenged Jesus, sadly, the one who should have had insight was Peter. He knows the Lord is capable of remarkable things. He knows the Lord is able to do the impossible. And yet, without even proper respect or reverence, he scoffs at the question. Master! (laughs) Master! The crowds, look! Look all around you! They're pressing in on you! It was a thoughtless and tasteless comment If this really was the master. But Jesus isn't going to let the issue drop. He's asked a question. He wants an answer. Verse 46. Jesus said. Someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus does not heal without some cost to himself. Power has gone out. Now he wants to know. To whom has it gone? And I believe that he wants to know for three reasons. Number one, confession is good for the soul. The one who confesses is free. It's no longer hidden. And so he wants this person to confess. Number two, God is going to get the glory. Healing does not happen just for healing's sake. Healing happens by Jesus so that God can be glorified for his great and mighty deeds. And three, whomever was healed is no longer unclean. He wants to make sure that this person knows that their days of being excluded from society and religion are over. The cured individual must be welcomed back. And so Jesus wants to know who it is so that he can not only establish credibility in her mind, you are now clean, but he wants the crowds to know. This person who previously was unclean is now clean. Well, I don't know for sure, but I bet when this woman touched the back of Jesus' cloak, the fringe of his garment, I bet she turned and tried to get away really quick. A quick touch and run. But she didn't get very far. And I bet her heart kind of dropped when Jesus just stops and says, Who touched me? Maybe she's afraid that Jesus is mad. Maybe she's afraid that Jesus is going to give her a scolding. But when she realizes that she cannot escape, she comes forward. Verse 47 says, She came trembling, falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And notice what Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Her faith though not the basic cause of her cure, had become the channel through which the cure had been accomplished. It was the instrument through which God's power through Christ affected her recovery. What caused her healing? Well, it was the power of Christ. That's what caused her healing. Jesus did. It wasn't his clothes. 
It wasn't as though he was wearing a magical garment. It wasn't her superstition. It was Christ. He healed. Further, something far more important happened here than just the ceasing of her blood flow. If Jesus' concern was just for her physical healing, then this text would have stopped in verse 44. We wouldn't have needed the rest of the story. But Luke includes the remainder of the story so that we would know this. Jesus sought this woman out because something greater than physical healing was taking place. Through faith, this woman also received spiritual healing. Daughter, loved one, precious child, he says. Your faith has made you well, physically and spiritually. Go in peace with your fellow man and with God. Go in peace. Isn't that amazing? Her faith, while quite small and arguably superstitious, really did believe that Jesus could do something about her condition. In response, Jesus not only made her body clean, he made her heart clean as well. Look, Luke tells us, only the Messiah can do that. This is Jesus. Well, as the crowds are standing around and they're amazed... Uh, what's just happened, we suddenly get yanked back into the original story in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from Jairus's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine the crushing weight of that blunt statement on Jairus's heart? He had left his dying daughter for just a moment to try to come find help, and she was still alive, and now suddenly, in his brief absence, she's died. He wasn't even there for her last breath. And how unimaginably cold was this messenger's message. Look what he says. She's dead. Might as well start the funeral. It's over. Don't bother the teacher anymore. This is a very limited view of Jesus' power. Basically, this messenger thought, if the daughter were alive, perhaps Jesus could make a difference, but nobody can bring people back from the dead, so it doesn't make sense to continue bothering Jesus now. But in that moment, look what Jesus does. He does what any caring, compassionate shepherd would do. He turns to Jairus and he says, Do not fear. Keep believing. She will be well. Don't fear. Jairus, don't give in. Don't listen to what that's, what he's saying. Only believe. She will be well. Jesus is stressing the importance of Jairus' faith in this moment. Jairus, you've already come to me believing that I can do something. Keep on believing. 
Don't give up in this moment. And so they make it to the house. Jairus is strong enough at least to walk with him back to the house. And Jesus takes his three closest friends in with him. And verse 52 says, they're all weeping and mourning. And he says, don't weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they all laugh at him. They know she's dead. These mourners don't know the power of Jesus, do they? They have no idea what's getting ready to happen. They fail to realize that Jesus is the resurrection and life. So in verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. When Mark retells this story, Jesus uses the Aramaic words that this little girl's mother would have used every morning when she woke her up, Talitha Kumai, young girl, arise, get up. At the word of Jesus, death immediately surrendered its prey and the child's spirit returned. And what's amazing to me is that in the very next breath, Jesus orders some food to be given to this little girl. His power cannot be fathomed, but his compassion cannot be measured either. Over the course of Jesus' ministry, think about how compassionate he's been. Jesus guarded the reputation of his doubting prophet when John the Baptist wasn't sure. Jesus defended widows. Jesus took little children in his arms. He wept over Jerusalem. He showed kindness to the woman who poured ointment on his feet. And while hanging on a cross, out of his compassion, he provided a home for his mother, an entrance for a robber, and forgiveness for his torturers. Here, in this passage, is the tender-hearted Savior giving back not only life to a child, but then making sure that her stomach didn't growl because she probably hasn't eaten for a while. Jesus does not overlook the smallest of details. Can you and I have a more compassionate Savior? Well, you may be sitting here this morning suffering with your own physical illness. Or maybe you have a child of yours who's suffering right now or a parent or a friend and and you're wondering, well, what about me? How does this passage apply to me? And it's here where I want to return to the point that Luke is trying to make. The focus of this passage is on whom? It's on Jesus, right? That's where the focus. Luke's entire purpose in this chapter is to reveal to Theophilus that the Jesus in whom he believes possesses all power and all authority and can save from all things and from all for those who call upon his name. Luke is underlining the importance of faith. The woman with the hemorrhage was healed, but her faith brought her more than physical healing. It was spiritual healing too. And that was far, far more important. 
Jairus saw the miraculous resurrection of his daughter, but it's his faith in Jesus as the Messiah that's on display here. It's his belief that Jesus could accomplish the impossible that drove him to the feet of Jesus, and Jesus proved himself to be true. That's what Luke wants us to see. So if you're here this morning and you're facing a physical illness, you should not read this passage as a how-to manual for finding physical healing, as though if you say certain words or if you have some magical phrase or some magical cloth or rug on which you kneel, that somehow that will force the mystical recovery with for which you seek. Does God want to heal you? I don't know. Maybe. You should ask. In fact, the book of James says it's appropriate. And it's right that we should ask the Lord for physical healing. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know all of his purposes and all of his plans. Therefore, we should never be shy about asking God for these things in our lives. But we also know that God allowed suffering to come into the life of Job. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it is God himself who gives Paul a thorn in the flesh. But in every one of those circumstances, God's ultimate purpose in the suffering of his children was to bring himself glory. How? Well, in Job's case, Job remained faithful and that brought God glory, even when he didn't understand why he was suffering. In Paul's case, Paul got to experience the power of Christ in a whole new way when Jesus told him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Friend, I don't know why God has allowed suffering in your life. Maybe it is so that he can miraculously heal you like he did for Jairus' daughter and this bleeding woman. Perhaps it is so that he can display in you his grace in the midst of your pain. I don't know, but I do know this. Your continued faith in him is what is most important. That is what is on display here in this passage of Luke. Keep believing that Jesus has provided the greatest healing for you imaginable. Your spiritual healing. That on a cross, he bore the punishment so that you could have eternal life now And you can have resurrection later. Keep trusting him. In spite of the pain, your Savior understands. He's walked the path of pain and suffering. He knows what this is like. And now he gives you his spirit to empower you and to comfort you in your struggling. So that even if your outer body is wasting away, your inner self is renewed day by day. And that, my friends, brings him untold glory. Will you stand with me? And let's pray.
God, thank you for recording for us these truths so that we too, like Theophilus, can be convinced Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has power over everything. He has authority over demons and nature and sickness and disease. There's nothing outside of the authority and power of Jesus Christ. And in his most powerful display of his glory, he went to a cross. And there he hung for us. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to do that. Thank you for sending him to take that punishment that we deserved so that we can have life when we come to you, when we repent of our sins and we confess you as Lord. And so I pray today that that would be far more important than anything else that we face in life, that we would be reminded that we have true and whole spiritual healing in Jesus Christ when we come and trust in him. Beyond that, you may heal us of physical pain, you might not. We don't know your purposes. We don't, we don't know ultimately what you want to accomplish. But whatever it is, we want to bring you glory. And so if we're healed, we'll praise you and give you glory. If we're not healed in the midst of our pain, we'll recognize your strength and we'll praise you and we'll give you glory. At the end of the day, it's all for you. Encourage us, strengthen us, I pray. In Jesus' name.